Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. We have just seven days left to go, so who's excited? Anyone? Yes, okay. Three people are excited. Okay, well, that's something. All right. So my name is John. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Calvary, um, and this morning it's my privilege and my very great responsibility to preach the Word. This is the third week of our December Christmas series. Um, Steve Daw started us off in Isaiah a couple of weeks ago, where we looked forward to the anointed deliverer. Last week, Paul preached from Matthew chapter 1, where we considered the genealogy of Jesus just before a long history of messy people that God used to bring that deliverer. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, right at the beginning of Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, just before one of the most well-known Christmas passages in the Bible, and we're going to consider three responses to the coming of that deliverer. There are a bunch of people in this chapter, and in some recent Christmases, we focused on Mary, Zechariah, and others, but today, we're going to consider the responses of Luke, the doctor-slash-historian, John, the Baptist, and Theophilus, the, well, whatever he was. We'll check back in in a few minutes with Theophilus. We'll be covering a lot of ground this morning, so I'd suggest it would be a good idea if you want to keep your Bible open, uh, starting at Luke chapter 1, where Chrissy read. But first, let's talk about Christmas. What do you think of when I say Christmas? Maybe you think of family, gifts, snow, maybe not this Christmas, apparently. Maybe you think of Hallmark movies, hmm? For the guys out there, it's okay. I, uh, I know you're only watching them for her. Your secret's safe with me. <laughs> Lots of Christmas messaging, cards, maybe that Hallmark movie. It's about being sentimental. Sit back, enjoy the season, and just take in the vibes. Be warm and fuzzy, definitely buy lots of stuff, Believe in whatever makes you feel good, but don't worry about facts and details and thinking, you know. Just enjoy the magic. Maybe that's your view of what we're doing here this morning. Maybe you think that we're gathering to sing songs that give us the warm fuzzies, to light candles and to hear readings, and sure, you got to hear some guy drone on for a while, but, you know, isn't it really just about the Christmas spirit Why shouldn't we enjoy the vibes, feel good, spread some warm cheer on a cold day like like caroling downtown last week, to know how to keep Christmas well and God bless us everyone. Now, I bet that I love a Christmas carol, and indeed Christmas carols, as much as almost anybody else in here. I love cutting down the tree, putting up the decorations and basking in the glow of the Christmas lights. Well, after the rather sanctifying experience of getting them up on the eaves in the first place and then having them, half of them blow down in the winter, as apparently happens to my house every single year, this year being absolutely no exception. I know some of you feel my pain. <laughs> but lights, songs, family, food, and tradition 
while these are all wonderful things, and I, as someone who loves these things, please hear me when I say that sentiment and warm feelings are not the point of Christmas. But don't just believe me. Luke tells us right at the beginning of his gospel, his account of the story of Jesus, what his purpose was in writing about these Christmas events. The warm fuzzies were not enough for Luke's readers, and some of whom at this point had tasted persecution. And warm fuzzies are not enough to feed our souls. So let's take a closer look at Luke, starting with the first four verses in his book. Luke was not the first person to tell the story of Jesus. We can see right here in verse 1 that Luke is, when Luke is writing, others have told the story. They've compiled the narrative. Luke has heard or seen or read what others have said about Jesus, and, and he knows that his readers have too, readers like Theophilus, who we'll get to in a few minutes. So having heard about Jesus and knowing that others have heard about Jesus, what does it seem good for Luke to do? To write an orderly account of what happened. Now, some translations use investigated, and maybe they use the phrase that Luke wanted to write it out for you in an orderly sequence. But why did he want to do this? Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, even before we get into those famous passages of the Christmas story, it's important to be clear that Luke wasn't just writing Linus's monologue in a Charlie Brown Christmas. He was recording history. He was writing about real events that really happened in a real place, in a real time, among real people. If you lived in Jerusalem in those days, you could find people who were there and who could tell you about the things that Jesus said and did because they were there for them. For people without that proximity, though, for people who lived far away or people like us who lived a long time later, how can we know that these stories about Jesus aren't just myths and legends like Hercules or Christmas elves. Luke records history for us so that we can be certain about the things we've been taught. Now, Luke wasn't a neutral, dispassionate observer just reporting a collection of facts that he had no particular interest in. He did have a purpose in writing, and he had theological points to make. Luke and Acts, which go together, have big things to say about God's plan to bring salvation to all peoples. He had a reason for writing about the particular things he wrote about. But part of that reason, and this is the really profound part, is that they happened. Luke wasn't a skeptic trying to disprove the existence of Jesus, although plenty of people have started out trying to do that and ended up disproving their doubts instead. Um, but Luke wasn't also doubting whether facts exist or whether it's possible to say what happened in the past or what really happened. Does that even exist? Luke had no time for that sort of foolishness. Why? Because he carefully investigated. He wasn't a skeptic, but he also didn't just repeat whatever gossip he'd heard. In verse 1, there's a narrative that's been handed down about Jesus, and Luke looked into it. He checked things out. 
There were eyewitnesses to these events, people for Luke to talk to, sources he could check to verify things. What's more, when this book was written, those sources and eyewitnesses were still around for Luke's readers to check with. If I were to stand up here and tell you some fantastical story about Sir Humphrey Gilbert, the guy who claimed Newfoundland for England, if I were to say that he was actually a pirate, for example, you might believe me because, you know, how much do you know about the guy? Do you know anybody who knew Sir Humphrey Gilbert? Also, I think it's at least partly true, the piracy thing about him. But if I tried to tell you a fantastical story about Joey Smallwood, our first premier, it'd be a different thing. Now, we kind of think of Joey as like ancient history, but he only left office 50 years ago, and he only died about 30 years ago. He was a larger-than-life character with pretty crazy stories, but it wouldn't be that hard to find people who knew the guy, who could tell you what he said on this occasion or whether or not such-and-such such actually happened. If I claimed that Joey Smallwood was a pirate with a peg leg who magically grew his leg back, you could find people to help clear that question up. You could prove that I was just making things up or repeating things that other people had made up. And that's what it was like with Luke. He didn't make all this up or repeat a legend he heard one time about someone who lived hundreds of years before. No, Luke made a careful investigation, a close following of facts that happened not that long ago, and he wrote this book as a careful, orderly account about a real person named Jesus. So what's your relationship to the facts about Jesus? Do you believe everything you hear? Do you disbelieve everything you hear? Maybe you're here this morning because someone asked you to come. Maybe family or a friend. Maybe you think, well, it's nice that these Christians have legends that make them feel good at Christmas time, but, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with the real world. Are you happy for this stuff about Jesus to just be a nice Christmas story? Warm, comforting, but who cares if it's really true? Or maybe you're someone who's come to church for a long time and you're comfortable with the traditions and the sounds and the feelings, but not so comfortable with the idea of a living, breathing Jesus actual person who makes actual demands on how you live your life. Jesus Christ is not just an idea or a story or a legend. Jesus was born around 2,000 years ago. He lived around 7,000 kilometers, sort of over that way, I think, and he died. Those parts aren't too controversial. But Luke also says that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he healed people, he raised the dead, and he rose from the dead. Now, these are specific events that Luke claims to be factually true. These are fantastic claims. You might even say impossible claims. And they either happened or they didn't. And it really matters whether they happened or they didn't. 
The Apostle Paul, someone that Luke spent a lot of time with, said in 1 Corinthians that if these events did not factually occur in history, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's useless, pointless, and we should all go home out of it. But if it's true, if these things really did happen, then it's not just a sentimental story to make you feel warm and fuzzy at Christmas time. It's evidence that demands your attention about a person you personally should follow. So don't pass by this book with some comforting nonsense about legends and stories that make people feel good. Either these things happened or they didn't. Luke tells us that they did. And the difference for you and I is life-changing, as it was for Theophilus. So let's take another look at verses 3 and 4. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So let's think about Theophilus and the choice he had to make about the facts of the coming Jesus, a choice that isn't so different from our own. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. Unlike some of the other characters of Christmas, he doesn't pop up in lots of places in the Bible. We don't learn very much about him here in Luke, but we can make some reasonably educated guesses. First off, his name, Theophilus. Theo for God and Philos for love. An Anglophile loves all things to do with England, and Theophilus could mean God-lover or, or loved by God. And this kind of suggests, at least, that Theophilus was a believer, someone trusting in God. The way Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus is not a reference to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. It would seem that he's a person of some kind of a rank or an importance. It's kind of like how Paul addressed Roman governors at the end of Acts, most excellent Felix, most excellent Festus. So Theophilus might have been someone important in the world's eyes, or, or at least important to Luke. We're not really sure. But what we can be sure about is that he has been told things about Jesus. During the time that Luke was writing, there was this whole new generation of Christians, a second-generation church. Theophilus was probably part of this second-generation church. Maybe, like Timothy, he grew up hearing the Word of God taught. Maybe he was taught about Jesus later in life, or maybe he's only just heard about him. Maybe he came to Sunday gatherings a bit like this one and heard people speak of Jesus. However it happened, Theophilus has been taught about Jesus. This word taught in verse 4 is catechesis, which is where we get the English word catechism. Maybe a word some people know. If you're from like a Roman Catholic or an Anglican background, you probably went to a catechism class when you were a child where uh, you were taught things often in the form of questions and answers. And in our Sunday school, we sometimes use questions from a thing called the New City Catechism, which is, again, questions and answers teaching about God, His Word, people, our need for salvation. One way or another, Theophilus has been taught, we might even say catechized, about Jesus, but Luke 
wants more for him. So let's read verses 3 and 4 again. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus has been taught true things, right things about Jesus. But Luke wants more for him. Luke wants him to have certainty. This written account of the precise facts about Jesus will give Theophilus more confidence in what he's been taught. Now, it can be easy enough to misunderstand something you hear or for someone to say, well, I didn't say that or I didn't mean it quite like that. So how can you be sure? Well, Luke gives Theophilus this written account of events to give him certainty about his faith because he can see exactly what's written. It agrees with what he's been taught, and it stands up to scrutiny. Remember, at this time, those eyewitnesses that Luke talked to, they're still around. If Luke wrote something that wasn't true, someone could find out and point it out. But Luke's writing stood up to scrutiny because it was true. When you tell the truth, it's easy to keep your story straight. Theophilus isn't told to just believe whatever he hears on a Sunday. And I challenge you, don't just believe whatever you hear on a Sunday or any other day of the week. As elders, it's our responsibility to ensure that truth is spoken from this pulpit. But it's also your responsibility to read the word. And you should test what you hear against the Bible. In Luke's second book, Acts, he commends people who double-check what they hear against the written word. In Acts 17, the apostle Paul, of all people, is teaching people in a place called Berea about the coming of Jesus, their Messiah. And these people are complimented and called noble because they receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Apostle Paul, handpicked by Jesus, is in town, and he's teaching these people. And what do they do? Do they say, well, if Paul said it, it must be true? No, they go to the Word to see if these things were so. They don't just accept anything they hear from an itinerant preacher, no matter how important or persuasive or charismatic he is. They check it against the Word and they're commended for it. So when I finish preaching here today, don't walk away saying, well, John said it, it must be true. That's not really a thing that people tend to say, but there you have it. You should definitely not say it about this in particular. No, you need to read the word. May it never, ever be said in this pulpit, just trust me, I said so. Luke and all the other authors of the Bible, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, have given us the word so that, like Theophilus, we can have certainty about the things we've been taught. God's word gives us certainty about the exact truth of what we've been taught. So read it. Read this book. Luke recorded this history for Theophilus, but also for you and me. 
Read Luke's account of what happened during the life of Jesus. And read part two, the book of Acts, which tells what Jesus did through his church in its earliest years. Read it yourself. And also, read it together. In Acts 8, there's a vignette where someone is reading God's word from the Old Testament. They're trying to understand it, but they're kind of confused. And and they say to one of the apostles that God sent to them, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And that can be like us sometimes. So let's read the word. Let's talk to the author, God the Holy Spirit, and let's talk about it together. Part of the reason we've had a suggested book of the month this year is to make it easier for us to have conversations rooted in the Bible. So um, what did you make of yesterday's reading? Read the word and talk about it. Join a gospel community group when they start up again in the new year. Um, A place that's all about opening the word together in community. Let's all work to make our community groups and this church a safe place for people to bring their questions. If you have questions, if you have doubts, if you're not sure about the reliability of what Luke recorded in the events of Jesus' life, come talk to us. Community group leaders, ministry leaders, your elders, we are here for you. But don't just believe everything you hear. Here or elsewhere, about Christmas or anything else, read the word and be certain of what you are taught. Finally, before he gets to the orderly account of Jesus' birth in chapter 2, Luke tells us about someone else who had to choose how to respond to Jesus. And that someone did not elicit warm, fuzzy feelings. And that someone was John the Baptist. Now, most of us probably know that John the Baptist was an important figure in the Bible, but I think a lot of us don't get just how big a deal John was. Here we are at Christmas time, and I'm going to tell you about a man in the Bible and how there was prophecy in the Old Testament about him. He was eagerly anticipated. An angel announced his miraculous birth, saying he would be filled with the Holy Spirit and turn the people of Israel back to God. He had disciples who followed him around in the desert while he preached to people. Well, who does that sound like? Well, we're not talking about Jesus yet. We're talking about John. Luke goes in this chapter to great lengths to show us just how important John was, but with an important twist. So let's just look at the facts about John that Luke has laid out for us in a very particular order. So if we start at verse 5, so I hope you still have your Bibles open. If you start at verse 5, we see and we learn about John's lineage, who his parents were and their connection to ancient Israel, to the high priest Aaron. The angel Gabriel comes and makes a prophetic announcement that a baby will be born in a miraculous way. People are amazed about what's happening. And in verse 25, mom praises God for what he's doing for and through her. Then if we skip down to verse 57, we see the time has come for the baby to be born. His relatives and neighbors rejoice. He's named on the eighth day as these things were done and given the name that Gabriel said he should have, John. There's prophecy about the salvation that God has raised up for his people, and finally the chapter concludes with, and the 
child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's a pretty amazing story. How does it compare to your story? I, know, I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of prophecy surrounding my birth. There were no angels announcing a miracle or telling my parents what to name me. No, it doesn't take a lot of humility to say that I'm not as big a deal as John the Baptist. Now, my name is John, and well, I guess I am a Baptist, so <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's really, really not the same thing. But do you know whose story it is similar to? Starting at verse 26, as Darren and Deanna were reading earlier, we see another mom and dad-to-be, and we learn about their lineage connecting them to ancient Israel, to King David. The angel Gabriel makes a prophetic announcement that Mary will have a baby in a miraculous way. She's amazed about what's happening. And when you jump down to 46, mom praises God for what he's doing for and through her. Then if we skip down to chapter 2, we see the time has come for the baby to be born. Angels and shepherds rejoice. He's named on the eighth day as these things were done and given the name that Gabriel said he should have, Jesus. There's prophecy about the salvation that God has raised up for his people. And finally, the section concludes with, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, does that sound familiar? (laughs) Something pretty special is going on here. John's story isn't just like a little bit better than my story. The way Luke writes this orderly account draws our attention to the ways in which the facts about John's story are similar to the facts about Jesus's story. The lineage, the angel Gabriel, the miraculous birth, the praises, the prophecy, the rejoicing, the naming, more prophecy, and finally that phrase, the child grew and became strong. When you put all that stuff in order, it makes John seem like a pretty big deal, but there's more. When John is born, there's a miracle following a miracle following a miracle. People are amazed. There's a sense of awe and anticipation. Everyone is wondering, who is this guy? Look at verses 65 and 66. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Flip over to chapter 3 for a sec, and just take a quick look at verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. These people, the people in John's day, the people in Jesus' day, they were in darkness and they were oppressed with cruelty. And they needed something more than just sentiment and warm feelings. They needed light and deliverance. Just like Zechariah promised about when Jesus was born. 
prophesied, not promised. It's not Zechariah's promise. He was prophesying God's promise, just like Isaiah prophesied about when Steve preached a couple of weeks ago. These people could see that God was on the move. And although they jumped the gun a little bit about John being the Christ, God was doing incredible things through him. Still, his greatest endorsement wasn't from the crowds or his parents or even the angel Gabriel. His greatest endorsement comes in Luke 7, when Jesus himself says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, said Jesus, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So John was a pretty big deal. But the thing is, as big a deal as he was, John wasn't the big deal. John's purpose was to prepare the way for one who is greater. Before the pandemic started, I went downtown to see a comedy show. A guy came out on stage and told jokes. For those who aren't familiar with how comedy works, that's usually what happens. Somebody tells jokes and other people laugh. Um, I know for me, for Adam, for Jordan, for some others in this room, that's not the reaction we usually get when we tell jokes, but you know, that's okay. Anyway, um, so people were laughing at this guy and everybody's having a good time and I don't remember his name, but he was funny. And by the end of the act, everybody was in a great mood peak laughter readiness. And then he left. He said thank you, he walked off the stage, and he was done. Seems kind of odd, right? Just when everybody's warmed up, just when everybody's like at peak readiness to laugh, well, not when you consider his purpose. Because this guy exited stage right, and Jerry Seinfeld entered stage left. So this first comedian, as funny as he was, and, and he was funny, he was just the opening act for the headliner. His purpose was to prepare people for the main event. Now, Luke makes this very, very clear. In the order he puts things, in this careful parallel he's done between John and Jesus, their stories are similar, but different. John was miraculously born of a barren woman. But Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. If we go back to verses 15 and 17 in chapter 1, and if you compare those to 32 and 33, you'll see that Gabriel told Zechariah that John would be great before the Lord, but Gabriel told Mary that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus wouldn't just be a great servant before God. He would be the Son of God of God. Gabriel said that John would be set apart to make ready, for the, make ready for the Lord a people prepared, but Jesus would be set apart to reign over the house of Jacob forever. John's purpose was to prepare the way for Messiah, not to be the way or the Messiah. And John knew it. Flip back to chapter 3 for a sec, starting with the verse we read earlier, verse 15 should always be suspicious when we read one verse and cut off in the middle of a sentence. Let's read the rest of that sentence now. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. People were asking, is John the one? Is he the guy? Is he the one we're waiting for? The one who's going to fix everything? The Messiah, the Christ? But he wasn't. He knew that he wasn't. And he said so. John was the messenger who came to prepare the way for the Christ. He wasn't the main event. He wasn't even the main character in his own story. And he knew it. John was a great prophet and teacher, but his purpose was to prepare the way for one who is greater. Now, I think there's something here for all of us about how we look at ministry, discipleship, teaching, and teachers. John had a vital ministry of calling people to repentance, and people responded in droves, but his ultimate purpose wasn't to grow his ministry or reputation. It was to prepare people for the coming Messiah and to point people to him. For those of us who are involved in some sort of ministry, and to be clear, every believer should be involved in some form of ministry, whether it's formal or informal, whether you're teaching in front of a crowd or just encouraging your brother or your sister one-to-one at a coffee shop. So for all of us, what's our mission, our motivation? As one of the elders here at Calvary, I oversee some areas of ministry that you might bump into on a Sunday morning or during the week. We want our music to be of high quality. We want the tech team to work their magic invisibly. We want the hospitality team to organize meal trains that care for people, to organize times of fellowship like tonight's banquet. And I have to say this, I am so grateful for the dedication of volunteers and staff who make all of this possible And more, people who can start packing up a church one Sunday and start having church somewhere else seven days later. But do you know what I struggle with as I try to lead and oversee these teams? It's easy for me to slip from gratitude to God for what He's doing through His church, for how He's using us for His glory, into pride as if it's my team accomplishing great things, accruing accolades, giving glory not to God, but to us, to this church, to a specific team, or even to me. Now, building teams and pursuing excellence can be good things. It it does matter to some degree that we do all of these things well. It matters that our music facilitates worship and doesn't distract from it. It matters that you can hear my voice right now through a sound system, and at 5.30 p.m., it's gonna matter quite a lot that there's food for the banquet when everybody turns up. But as we do these things, what's our mission? What is my motivation? Is it for people to think well of me? Or like John, do I point people 
away from me and towards Jesus. Now, lest you think you're getting off easy because you don't oversee a formal ministry of church, well, this isn't just about formal forms of ministry. If you're a Christian, if you're a part of the body, it's your duty to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens. We don't often do these things as well as we should, but but when we do do them, what's our mission? What's our motivation? Do we need to be needed? Do we like to be liked? Are we generous with our time and our money so that others will approve of us? Are you, Christian, like the Pharisees that John railed against, like the hypocrites that Jesus railed against, those who did good deeds in order to be praised by others? Are you happy for people to admire what you do in Jesus' name whether or not they see Jesus? Who do your good deeds point people to? Now, I'm not saying that every good thing you, has, you do has to be explicitly tied to evangelism, but when you help, serve, give, encourage, who is glorified? Is it you or is it Jesus? How about the Bible teachers you listen to? Do you walk away from a sermon or a podcast saying, wow, that John the Baptist really gave it to the Pharisees? Do you walk away saying, wow, that preacher can preach? Or do you walk away saying, wow, God is so good and so powerful and so just and so loving and so gracious and so merciful to me, a sinner? Don't leave here thinking about the messenger. Leave here thinking about the one whose sandals the messenger wasn't worthy to untie. And yet the one who washed his disciples' feet. If you leave here on any given Sunday thinking about the preacher, your vision is too small. If you read a Christian book and you're left with a sense of awe at the writer, how intelligent they are how insightful they are, how fantastic their exegesis is, you might be fixating on the messenger rather than the message. Don't be like the Corinthians who claim to follow Paul or Apollos or Peter. Follow Christ. And if a teacher makes more of themselves than of Christ, well, then perhaps reconsider who you listen to. So that's the easy application. Now, as we conclude, let's get really uncomfortable. Lean in and let me ask you a question that we are definitely not supposed to ask. A question about a very uncomfortable truth. Not sentiment, but truth. Who's the main character of your story? Remember when I said that John wasn't the main character in his story? How did that make you feel? Did it bother you? Did it rub you the wrong way? How about this? You are not the main character. Sit with that for a minute. How does that make you feel? Does it grate 
on our collective 21st century sensibilities? Do you, like a lot of people, say, I am the master of my ship, I am the captain of my soul? Does the idea of being a supporting character in God's drama, let's be honest, does it feel demeaning? Does it make you feel less than you think you are? Less even than God made you to be? Well, did John's purpose of pointing people to Christ instead of himself, did that diminish him, make him less? Or did fulfilling that purpose give him the greatest greatness he could ever have known? John said that he wasn't worthy to untie Jesus' sandals and elsewhere that he, being Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And yet Jesus said that among those born of women, none is greater than John. The fact is that the purpose we read about in this written account, given to John by God, didn't diminish his greatness. It gave it to him. To most people, living in the desert and eating locusts would not have looked like achieving John's best life now. But there is no more privileged position he could possibly have attained than preparing the way for the one who was to come. And there is no more glorious position for you than to obey the call of Jesus to come follow me. Your hopes, your dreams, your potential, your vision, these can be good things, but if they're turned in on yourself, they're so much smaller and more disappointing than they could be. No matter how grand you think your ambitions are, they pale in comparison to God's plans and his mission for you. Remember what Jesus said about John in Luke chapter 7? Well, Here's the rest of that sentence. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So will you be a part of that kingdom? Like Luke, will you investigate the claims about this person named Jesus? Don't just bask in the glow of the Christmas lights. Don't be content with mere sentimentality. Look into the reality of this person we celebrate. Like Theophilus, you too can have certainty that the things you've been taught about Jesus are true because you can go to the source. Don't believe everything you hear. Believe what God says here. And finally, when you know that the story of Jesus is true, Like John, make your life about him. Don't be content with your little ambitions, your reputation, or even the ways you serve the church. Like John, make your life about serving God's purpose and pointing people to Christ. This Christmas, be certain that Jesus is the main character. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you came to rescue. You came to bring light into darkness, to bring life where there was death. Thank you for the way that you came, that in your wisdom, that you knew when the fullness of time would be for you to come. 
and you knew how to prepare the way. Thank you for John. Thank you for Luke, who recorded these things for us. And Lord God, we ask that you would help us to be certain of these truths. Amen.